This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. When you're in the business of feeding the world, and our mission is to protect and preserve the grain that feeds the world, we feel that's as high as it gets. Iowa's economy is globally interconnected. After Tiananmen Square 30 years ago, China kind of went into a, a, a shell because everybody hated them so much with what, what they did then. This would be far worse. And all aspects of Iowa business are now changing. How should we be doing business the way the client wants to do business with us as opposed to how we traditionally might have gone to market? Iowa-based business issues, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. Iowa's overall economy, despite diversification over the past 50 years, is still reliant on agriculture. That's always a challenge given the uncertainty of weather and related matters, but there's further uncertainty of late due to global conflicts and trade wars. Sukup Manufacturing Company is a multi-generation, family-owned manufacturer of grain bins and dryers, material handling equipment, and pre-engineered metal buildings, headquartered in Sheffield, Iowa. The company was founded in 1962 and employs a total of 600 people in Sheffield and six other Midwest locations. Charles Sukup is president of the company, taking over for his father some 25 years ago. We first spoke with him for this program last year about the changes then in place in the global marketplace. Concerns raised then were even more evident when he and I renewed the conversation in June of this year. It's been challenging here, particularly because of farmers and the low net farm income. Things are very serious out there on trying to make income. We're fortunate in our company, Sukkot Manufacturing, we make grain bins, grain storage, and that is the one area that can make farmers money. Uh, we like to say store now, profit later. And boy, when you see what's happened in corn prices, what an advantage is to have control of your grain and your storage there. Uh, steel, the tariff situation, we'd hoped a year ago that that would have a happy ending. Uh, we're still waiting for the happy ending. Uh, here, the farmers are amazingly tolerant and kind of agree with a lot of people that there's some real issues with China that need to be addressed that we never have addressed. And if we don't get it done this time, it's not going to happen. And uh, But we're hoping in a few weeks, not a few years on that. Your company buys U.S. steel. This is a buy American company based in Iowa. But yet the tariffs still affected the raw materials you purchased. Explain again how that came to be and, and how it is now. Well, you bring up a, a good point, and uh, we don't quite understand it either, but when the tariffs were first announced, and as you say, we buy all U.S. domestic steel, we do not buy foreign steel for our grain bins, and the prices on the domestic steel went up 30%, and they started going up before the tariffs ever went into place. So it was kind of a whole ripple effect and the logic that was given for putting the tariffs in place was to protect the uh, American steel industry. 
but from past experiences what happens if they're protected too much they get inefficient and in the long run and everything and we in ag are familiar with the long run uh, is going to come back and bite you uh, with it so uh, we're hoping the tariff situation gets settled out you did not use this phrase but i will the domestic steel producers appear to be a bit opportunistic in other words it's a way that they can raise prices increase their margin but it's still going to be less than the uh, imported steel Am I overstating? No, and I think another simplistic way of saying uh, supply and demand, uh, it's a, a natural uh, business response there, but it can create uh, painful short-term issues, and, and that's uh, something that customers uh, get a little surprised about, about the change in how much steel has gone on up, and we ended up eating more than we wanted to of that increase last year but eventually stay in business you've got to get it to even out and everyone has to make a profit but that that's part of business and farmers uh, we're, we're all in the same boat we all know how corn prices go up and down and you try and plan ahead and you know you can look back and think how you could have done it a little bit better but uh, that rearview mirror always has a real good vision to it. We have talked on this program with economists who, again, from a strict textbook standpoint, I would say, they like to say no tariffs, uh, keep things open, etc. But there's obviously the other side about being taken advantage of, and you referenced it, and so I'll ask very directly, do you think that, by and large, your customers, fellow business owners, have a sense of this is a, a proper place to draw the line even though it may mean some short-term hardship but again you have to stand for something is that fair or am I overthinking that yes I, I'm hearing hearing uh, some of that that and particularly on the tariffs there's some argument that it's more currency manipulation and currency that the uh, Chinese yuan has uh, gone down proportionally enough that uh, for them it's about net zero uh, sum that yeah there's tariffs but now uh, the dollar to the Chinese currency is lower that makes up for it and they have being a uh, autocratic regime they have more flexibility in the speed and, and what they do on things. When you're in the business of feeding the world, and our mission is to protect and preserve the grain that feeds the world, we feel that's as high as it gets. Charles Sukup is president of the company his father founded some six decades ago, Sukup Manufacturing in Sheffield. And those issues regarding trade between the U.S. and China continue to be in the news, fueling even more uncertainty. Jordan Goodman is a nationally recognized expert on personal finance who was with Money Magazine for nearly 20 years. We've talked with him in the past for guidance on these issues, and I asked him to break down why U.S. trade issues with China are different from bilateral discussions this country is having with other nations. 
China doesn't follow the rules. <laughs> they're, they're, they're part of the World Trade Organization. They joined in 2002, and other countries in general follow the rules. When they make a deal, they keep their word. The Chinese have violated WTO rules time after time. They've had various cases go to the WTO, which they've lost, and then they still don't follow the rules. So, I mean, stealing technology is not... The rules are not supposed to allow you to do that. Manipulating your currency, they do that. Uh, they force uh, state-owned enterprises to you know, take money and kind of subsidize them. That's against WTO rules. Uh, they force technology transfers. I mean, they just do a lot of things which are not in line with the rules, and they keep doing it. So that's why President Trump has said, well, the only leverage we have over them is to bash them over the head with tariffs, and we've been doing more and more. And they still haven't followed the rules. So what else is there to do? But I think that's the difference between China and all these other countries that in general do follow the WTO rules. And the intellectual property situation, the requirements of China for any other businesses that are trying to operate in China, again, it's an entirely different set of rules. And not only are they not above theft, they demand that you turn over Correct. your trade secrets. And that's very different than any other nation. Correct. And they not only turn over, they, they, they then take them and copy them. I saw a recent story, for example, about a, a railroad company or a train company that wanted to put some trains into China. And they did it, but they had to turn over their uh, plans for the, you know, the technology for these trains. And then like a year or two later, all of a sudden, the Chinese came out with trains that looked very much like our trains using all the technology. I mean, and then they built their own trains. That's just one of many examples. They steal Disney films. They steal software. Uh, this is one of the major uh, advantages that the United States has is our intellectual property, and they just steal left and right. So, I mean, again, we've been objecting to this for 25 years, but nobody's ever done anything about it until the president just said, you know, you've got to stop doing this kind of thing. The ag industry obviously is different because when you're talking about some of these commodities that are exported from China, they're not consumable, they're not disposable, they have a long shelf life. Right. But it's very different when you're talking about Midwest agriculture. Right. And uh, this has been our biggest market for soybeans and wheat and pork and all kinds of things that we produce, very high quality. We give them a good price. They buy lots of our stuff. I think soybeans alone was like $16 billion, something like that. So that's the leverage that China has used over us, is either putting uh, uh, tariffs on those or stopping buying them altogether and sourcing instead to Argentina, Brazil, Australia, Canada, you know, all kinds of other places. And that's really, really hurting your listeners and people in the Midwest Farm Belt. Um, this was a major market. It's not as though you, you just come up with an agreement and just flip a switch and everything goes back to the way it was before. These are very long-term relationships that took a long time to develop, and they've been disrupted terribly here. And even if we got an agreement, it's not as though they're going to stop buying from these other places as well. So it's, it's going to be hard to get these things back, even if we get an agreement. But I don't see how we're going to get an agreement. The uh, Peter Navarro and uh, Robert Lighthizer, the two main trade negotiators, talk about the seven deadly sins of, of the Chinese. One of them is what we just talked about, intellectual property, uh, subsidizing state-owned industries, um, stealing technology, um, manipulating their currency. Obviously, China is focused on what's going on in Hong Kong and those protests. The reaction right. of the Chinese could have a huge impact on this trade discussion, trade war, correct? So we've had 14 straight weeks. Typically on the weekends is when they have these huge protests. They've been literally millions of people. I think there's 7 million people in Hong Kong. 
and some of these protests have had 2 million people, I mean, a huge amount of the population out there protesting. It is not just students. It's lawyers, it's civil servants, it's housewives. I mean, it's everybody, really. And every weekend it seems to get more and more tense and more clashes, and they're going from pepper spray to water cannons, and there's a whole bunch of Chinese troops in Shenzhen right across the border uh, that have not done anything yet, but at, at a moment's notice they could send those in, and I, I hope it doesn't happen, but we could have very much like a Tiananmen Square massacre. This time it would be streamed live on people's iPhones all over the world, worse than what happened 30 years ago in Tiananmen Square. If that were to happen, China would become an international pariah, and there would be no chance for a trade deal. Can you imagine us making a trade deal with them after they've murdered God knows how many thousands of, of Hong Kong people? It just wouldn't be possible. Now, it's not going to happen in the next two weeks, Jeff. I, I'll tell you that because October 1st is when the Chinese have their 70th anniversary of the founding of the Communist China in 1949. Mm. So they're building up to this huge kind of birthday party. But right after that, maybe they could. <laughs> we'll see. I hope it doesn't happen. But if that does happen, I think it could really upset any possibility of a trade deal, which really hurts the Chinese economy and it hurts the U.S. economy. It hurts the world economy. I mean, after Tiananmen Square 30 years ago, China kind of went into a, a a shell because everybody hated them so much with what, what they did then. This would be far worse. Financial journalist Jordan Goodman and I spoke on September 20th. His website is moneyanswers.com. When we come back, we'll talk with the man who now runs another multi-generational family business in Iowa about their challenges. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. A cluster of communication-related companies in Iowa City, Economy Advertising, Bankers Advertising Company, and True Art Color Graphics, are run by Iowa-based fifth-generation owners. David Bywater is president of the group and told me during a conversation in June of this year about how operating family-owned businesses, and his in particular, has changed over the most recent generations. I have fun telling our folks to think about the number of different ways that we can communicate today versus how we communicated 30 years ago. And in fact, we've spent some time brainstorming and counting them up. In other words, if you think about different media tools, electronic tools, different ways people engage and so forth. When my dad was enjoying the prime of his career, you had things like the phone book, you had radio advertising, newspaper advertising, and so forth, um, that were pretty straightforward in terms of, of the choices that people had related to marketing their businesses. That's exploded. We still have those avenues, um, but at the same time, we've now added social media, we've added 
lots of electronic communications, things like I'm going to do a blog related to promoting my business and so forth. And it's interesting how you know, different people pay attention to different things. And so I uh, have told people my challenges now include things like how do I convert the text message that I received from a customer into my to-do list when I'm not necessarily a big texter because I didn't grow up in that generation, but at the same time, I have to be engaged with my client that way. It makes it interesting based on all the different ways that people might reach out to me or all the different ways that I feel I should be reaching out to others. People will say, well, why don't you just do Twitter? Well, you can't because then you're missing all the Facebook users and those who care for Instagram or whatever other myriad of communication outlets. And as a professional, your clients expect you to be in tune with every place that they can reach a customer. That makes your job exponentially more difficult, but yet you can't, if you will, bill the client for every little thing on this ever steeper learning curve. That's a, that's a challenge. That's very true. We, we talk to ourselves about how should we be doing business the way the client wants to do business with us as opposed to how we traditionally might have gone to market. And that's probably the biggest struggle in a long time business, let alone a family business, where we think about how we change that go to market strategy. Um, and it really needs to be customer focused, not we've always done it that way. Now, I'm not saying that you know the generations are having that argument necessarily, but at the same time, we do have to stay cognizant of those changes and say, yeah, I really ought to try something new here. And especially again for a business, and, and I'll ask you to remind the audience what your business is, what you do, but it might be a situation where you go to a customer who has done a calendar, for example, every year, and they've done it for 50 years. And it might be the time that you have to recommend to them that may not be the best place, or because it's heritage, it is the best place. These are all things where they look to you as the professional. But remind people again what Economy Advertising does. So Economy Advertising Company, I argue, is in the physical media business. Through our division, Bankers Advertising Company, and our printing company, True Art, we produce products that we put people's names on in their marketing messages and so forth. Physical branding, if you will. Um, and we've had a long time history of handing those items out. You mentioned the calendar. Uh, we have calendars that we have produced for customers through our plant 60, 70, 80 years and so forth. Our challenge related to that is keeping the calendar relevant and helping our customer achieve the distribution that they really need to have. In other words, in years past, it was pretty easy to put it in the lobby of the bank and say, oh, we're going to put so many of these out here and let somebody come pick up and use them. Our struggle today is, um, or our challenge today, is to help our customer um, not only figure out how to distribute that product, but make sure that it is having the impact that they want it to. And so the great, great thing about the printing industry is we can evolve the product now to include a lot more variable information, a lot more customized information about the client and what they do, instead of five lines of advertising copy that included a phone number and an address. Um, and so our challenge is to consistently remind the customer, here's how we can expand the impact of your advertising while reminding them of the value of physical media. It used to be people would gather five, six, seven calendars, have them all over the house, or they'd pick their favorite. So then you had to make sure that you were the one that was picked because of artistic quality or whatever. And now it's a matter that people don't just want a calendar, if you will, to use that example again, to tell days of the week. There has to be something more to get the consumer to use it, and that's the way that you can then embed the messages in a way that we couldn't when technology did not allow 
a more individualized or specialized printing. So right, picking the right product is the important thing, thinking about who's going to be using it and how at the end of the day. One of the things we're surprised about, for example, is that we still make a lot of planners for people. And you think, okay, with your phone, why would you ever need a planner? Well, our research tells us that customers still want to understand the spatial relationship between today and what's on my to-do list and three weeks from now and what I need to get accomplished between now and then. And the visual of looking that at that grid is helpful to them. Okay, so we have a renewed interest in the planner project product um, in a number of different ways um, as customers think, I still need a tool to help me be organized. Okay, now the interesting thing about calendar advertising is that most recipients of one can remember who gave it to them, okay? And so that's half the battle. That's, that's marketing success right there. And so, so we build a product that might cost between $2 and $5, depending on how extensive and, and customized they want it to be. Um, but at the same time, um, we remind our customers of the value of that constant interaction with it. Um, I always have fun at the different meetings that I go to, whether it's the Boy Scouts or my church or what have you, of we have to plan the next event. And I get my paper calendar out and I'm ready to tell them when I'm available and not. And I watch the others fumble with their electronic calendar uh, and so on. And my most fun I have is when someone throws out, I'd like to meet on Monday the 27th of May. And I get the chance to remind them that that's actually Memorial Day, and I probably won't be participating in a meeting on that day. But our friends at Google and other affiliated uh, electronic sources don't necessarily program that into your product unless you so choose. So anyway, it's fun to watch and interact that way. If I'm carrying that 365 days in a year, that is a daily reminder of who gave it to me, and that is money in the bank literally for that customer. Right. And so uh, we have fun, for example, our own, our own bank hands out calendars. We get the privilege of making them. Uh, and uh, I remind them that folks will walk in and want that product. Um, we had a conversation with their marketing team a few years ago. They said, we don't want to hand out too many. And I said, why not? Why wouldn't you want anybody who walks in the building to have a reminder of who you are, even if they don't bank with you? Because someday they might. You know, and that's the whole point of that advertising product and so forth. So we've been doing that for 123 years. It's been a lot of fun. We do anticipate that market to continue. Uh, there are segments of it that are shrinking. But there also are segments of it that are growing. Um, and as far as we're concerned, it has a great, it's a great, the calendar is a great advertising vehicle. And we love producing them here in Iowa. So fun thing to do in Iowa City. David Bywater is president of Economy Advertising and its related companies in Iowa City. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, Go online, iwawatch.org.